This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A bill moving through the General Assembly would make it easier for inmates to serve shorter sentences for good behavior in Virginia. Capitol Bureau reporter Jackie DeFusco explains why inmate advocates say the proposals don't go far enough. Well, the senator who introduced the bill says that she, too, was disappointed that the version that advanced out of committee was what she called watered down. But she says without these changes, the bill couldn't have passed. Today, more than a dozen protesters weathering the rain to stand up for loved ones behind bars. For my husband, a second chance looks like him coming home before his son is 18. America's prisons are overflowing, but many who are kept behind bars are just children. Thousands of youths are tried as adults in the U.S. every year, and some are given life sentences in the country's harshest jails. Many then find themselves becoming victims of sexual violence and suicide. Authorities in western Pennsylvania have charged 11-year-old Jordan Brown as an adult. The boys will have one trial together in adult court. The length of his sentence is also the length of his life. They're not old enough to drive, drink, or vote, but in America, kids as young as seven years old can be tried as adults. Our mission at Death by Incarceration is to shed light on a system that viciously targets marginalized people. The United States is quickly moving back to the crime and punishment model that made us the most incarcerated country in the world. We feel our message and show are more important than ever. This country has a human rights crisis. It's not about politics, it's about what our moral obligations are to our fellow citizens and how we treat other human beings. In the words of the great Bell Hooks, for me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? During our first season, we realized that most of our conversations revolved around men, virtually ignoring the impact mass incarceration has on women and girls. Suave and I have interviewed over 20 women for our next series of episodes. We have some amazing stories to share and are proud of the work we've done to prepare for the next phase of our show. Over the past quarter century, there has been a profound change in the involvement of women within the criminal justice system. This is the result of more expansive law enforcement efforts stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry that uniquely affect women. The female incarcerated population stands over seven times higher than it did in 1980. More than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18. 
Amanda Lewis has been incarcerated in the Virginia Department of Corrections for almost 20 years. She took a plea deal on multiple charges in 2004, including armed robbery and gun possession. At the time of her arrest, Amanda was an active heroin addict. This was her first real involvement with the system. Amanda's case was complicated by the fact that her charges were in two counties. The judge in the first case stipulated that she could not serve her time concurrently, which forced the second judge to add time to her sentence based on Virginia's mandatory minimum sentencing laws. Although a new law in 2020 would have allowed Amanda to get good time credits for her work while incarcerated, she now has a strong chance of serving her entire sentence thanks to the new governor, Glenn Youngkin, and Attorney General Jason Miarez new tough-on-crime stances. Virginia is problematic on many levels. Although they have abolished both juvenile life without parole and the death penalty, they continue to over-sentence many marginalized community members. And although one of the safest states in the nation, continue to push fear-based narratives. The strides that were made are currently being erased by a lock-them-up mentality that has caused the destruction of many of Virginia's poorest communities. Amanda is an example of how the system criminalized substance abuse and poverty in this country. Virginia has a long history of criminalizing substance abuse. It has been the chosen path. Your call to action is to call the Virginia Attorney General and ask for stronger diversion programs to eliminate the need to incarcerate people who need and want treatment. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Amanda Lewis, and I'm my inmate number is 1150862. And uh, 2003, I was convicted of armed robbery. And I'm here at the Slovana Correctional Center for Women, which is the maximum security prison in Virginia. And my release date is 2024. I'm an addict. And six months prior to my arrest, I lost my father to cancer. And I relapsed. So I just, it was a continuing downward spiral. This is my first time to prison. My arrest record is not that long. I've had a couple of DUIs, driving on suspended, one petty larceny. So my record was pretty clean, but because I had five counts of uh, armed robbery, that's why I got the sentence that I did. And because of the sentencing guidelines in Virginia, how they work, my time was just stacked on top of each other instead of being able to run concurrently. So here I am, almost 18 years later. It's almost over with. I made it through. <laughs> and i um, excited to go home, man, next year, you know. So I know Suave had some questions from our previous interview, but I just want to talk really quickly about Virginia mm-hmm. because it's, it's, a, it's a unique state in that there is no parole, so you're going to serve right. most of your time no matter what. They've got some new good time laws that help you know, cases like yours. But one of the things that I find the most interesting about your case is the judge in the first county, because you were convicted in two counties of robbery, correct? Yes. Yes. The judge in the first county saw themselves as some sort of overall decider on your case and kind of handed over to the other judge uh, a pretty strict sentencing guideline around running your sentence concurrent or consecutive. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and sort of how that even happens? I mean, I would assume that each judge in each county has the right to do what they want, but it doesn't sound like that's the case in Virginia. Yeah, unless you put yeah, I don't, I don't really under, I don't understand how it happened myself, to be honest with you, but she gave me the first county Arlington County got sentenced to 18 years straight, no time suspended, and three years probation. And she put in a stipulation in that sentencing that said no additional time that I 
was going to get could run concurrently with her time. So when I went to Fairfax a few months later to be sentenced, the judge was like, kind of his hands were tied. So I don't understand how that's legal, how they can do that, but they did it. And he said, because I'd been sentenced in Arlington first, uh, it hiked up my guidelines for when I went over to Fairfax. And so I just remember the judge looking at the situation and he's like, you know, I'm just not going to give you a ton of time on top of what you already received. He's like, but what you did was serious and you deserve some time for that. So he did actually give me the 20 years on top of what I got, but suspended 14 of it, which left me six years on top of 18. So that's where I got the 24 years. And I was just really happy about that, for real. I mean, when I came back, I remember coming back to the jail that uh, night, and I was just so happy. (laughs) And people were looking at me like I lost my mind, like, how can you be so happy you got six years on top of the 18 you already got? And I'm like, well, I mean, it's all about perspective, because it could have been a lot worse. It really could have been. I mean... You know, I was just uh, happy that he showed some kind of mercy on me, you know, aside from, you know, the first judge really, you know, hammering me with, with that time. So, yeah, well, I, she, was but very, I, she was very unforgiving in every aspect. So. I think one of the issues, though, that I see in your case, and I see in a lot of other cases, especially, you know, in states like Virginia and states like Pennsylvania, where Suave's from, California is moving away from the harsher sentences for drug addicts um, in some ways, right. in some ways not, depending on your so, so, so socioeconomic status, quite honestly. But one of the things that's disturbing in that amount of time is that for me, you know, I believe that we need to strengthen our treatment. And that there are people out there, you know, I, Suave and I talk about this all the time, that should be in prison. You know, when we're talking about crimes against children, we're talking about sort of the psychopathic murders that have occurred, um, you know, really heinous stuff. But when we talk about people that have serious issues with, with substance use and addiction, and also a lot of people who come from that background have incredibly large amounts of trauma and many times also are dual diagnosed with mental health issues. I don't think that our system, especially in states like Virginia, are set up to handle that in a meaningful way. I think they're set up to be punitive. And your case is a really good example of how punitive it can be, even for, you know, and just bluntly, because we talk about race a lot on this show, a a white girl with her first offense. You know, um, when when you're a heroin addict, you get a definite taste for that attempt at dehumanization. Like you're just some kind of monster and, you know, and I, I want to talk a little bit about that and your, kind of your perspective on that as you're getting closer to being released, because after talking to you a number of times and we talk and I talk to your, your brother and, and we're going to have him on the show to hear his side of what happened the night you actually got arrested. I know that your issues revolved around your addiction. And I also right. know from what he's telling me and what I can kind of glean from talking to you that you are not interested in that lifestyle anymore. And you, you, like many of us, have sort of aged out of being you know, a threat to society. But should that right. have to happen in a, you know, in a high security prison? kind of is my question and maybe just give us a little right. perspective on that because you know I understand you were happy you didn't get an additional 10 or 20 years but let's be real you still got 24 years on a first right. offense based on right. on drug addiction right I feel that Virginia is not Virginia for one doesn't have uh, enough programs uh, for people dealing with addiction especially heroin addiction because I was on methadone for years um, in Virginia before I got mocked up and there were really only maybe two <laughs> methadone clinics in all of Northern Virginia. 
and that just seemed crazy to me. But even the rehabs and whatnot, it's just, Virginia is just not set up to really, their system is not really set up very well to help addicts. Um, and even within the prison system, I'm telling you, man, there are more yoga classes here than there is NA. There, there is one NA group we meet every week, well, before the pandemic, we would meet every week just one time. And we had to fight for that, for that group. And there was a one 12-step class that we take the next day. And so that really is all, only rehabilitation for addiction in prison. And it always really blew my mind that they would have yoga classes almost every day. But they, yeah, it's just the, the system really blows my mind. And proposals get wrote up. My friend Kelly Payne here is constantly writing her proposals, trying to fight for these programs because they're not addressing like key issues of, of get, really getting to the root of why people commit the crimes they commit. And 70% of the time, it's due to drug addiction. So, and even when you get out, even when you transition out of prison, I mean, I always felt like that's why I wanted to go back to California because when I lived in San Francisco, I saw all the programs that help people transition out of prison back into society. And they have more, they offer more help to people that were incarcerated when they get out than any other city in the United States. And so that's why I wish I was back in San Francisco when I got out. But I'm not, I'm in Virginia and I kind of have to make the best of uh, the situation that I'm given. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, they don't address the, the root of the issue here at all. I feel your pain because in Pennsylvania, it's the same thing. We have more yoga classes and I'm a big guy, so yoga don't do shit for me, right? I need to be working uh -huh. on my brain, right? But that is because in Virginia, there is no parole. So basically, they don't even care if you participate in a program or not because they're getting all their time out of you anyway. Mm -hmm. So that, so why get these programs that going to prepare you for society? It don't matter. They, they're basically maxing you out on your time in Virginia. Right. They're basically maxing you out, so therefore programs have little substance to them. Those that's been on the inside, how important it is to have these type of programs in our life to make our transformation. But the system right. don't care. That's why they'd rather bring a yoga class than to have an AA class or NA class or, right. or, or, or class that's going to show you how to do resumes on the computer. You know, it's a shame that in the 21st century, the prison system is still teaching guys how to do resumes on paper. When we all know that you, when you come home, you can't walk into no establishment with a resume. They're going to look at you like you crazy. Everything is done right. on computer right. technology, but the DOC don't right. prepare you for that because the DOC is built on one thing, punitive to make you suffer the pain and hopefully to make you re-offend once you are because they don't give you enough to stay out. They give you enough to satisfy the parole ball. You know, right. make them look good. Like I, I, I went to um, changing. I'm thinking for a change in the prison system, yeah. which is run by a grant that the system got. But they don't give you enough to prepare you for success out here. It's been mired in controversy for nearly two years. Now Virginia's parole board is about to get a major overhaul. Tonight, an update to a problem solver's investigation. Crime insider John Burkett asked the governor-elect and attorney general-elect what will happen to the board after Inauguration Day? I've just been very consistent. I want to make sure that we have a complete fresh start. On January 15th, Virginia's new governor will be inaugurated. And one of the first things on Glenn Youngkin's agenda, shaking up the state agency that has power to grant inmates an early release from prison. And as I've said on day one, I will change out the parole board and we will have a new parole board on day one. So therefore, right. it's forced on us 
people like Kevin, people like me, people like you, people like your friend that you just mentioned, to keep pushing them proposal with the hope that one day one of them might say, you know what, this might work. Because in the prison that right. I was in, 90% of the programs that was affected were created by lifers. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it's a mess. And you know, the thing is, Amanda, even San Francisco now, most of the programs that were working with the system previously are now have now moved to the harm reduction modality. So if you want to be abstinent and you're, it's part of your parole to be abstinent because that's what law enforcement generally does, you're going to be in a situation in, you know, like Walden House now is almost, it's, it's, it's harm reduction. So you're going to be in a situation around people that are like on high doses of methadone and suboxone that right. aren't necessarily expected to be clean, you know, and I don't have a problem with any of that. Right. You know, I think harm reduction is fantastic. And I think in certain, in many, many cases, it works really well. But when you're coming out of prison and you, you're already facing a bunch of adversity around, you know, getting a job, you know, housing, just general stigma attached to formerly incarcerated people. And you're looking at going to a rehab that's funded by, you know, the CDCR or in your case, the Virginia Department of Corrections. And it's you're going to be around a bunch of people that are still one foot in to that lifestyle. It's kind of a dangerous you know, proposition, in my opinion. And I think one of the right. things that I would like to see, you know, is an advocate for individuals that are coming out is the opportunity to be around people that are dedicated to change that have done a lot of work on themselves inside. So you've got that support system when you get out. And, you know, how, how do we do that? How do we support you when you get out, Amanda? What do we do for you so you don't fall through the cracks or end up in some kind of a program that is set up for people that are still living on the street to, to reduce their harm. Your harm's been reduced for the last, you know, almost 18 years. Right. Well, it's not so much anymore because, I mean, for real, like in the past, like, four years, you know, there's been an explosion, you know, in a prison with a suboxone and whatnot, and it's everywhere. And so that, you know, with that being said, you know, my I have a couple of friends who have still advocated big time that we need more programs there because look, you have an epidemic going on and you're just ignoring it. I mean, you're not ignoring it. The only thing you're doing is drug testing everybody and, you know, giving them charges and, and taking, you know, months and months and months of their good time, but not offering them any help. It's, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. But as far as getting out, when you talk about, you know, what someone needs for help or support, I really don't know if there's much uh, other people can do. It really falls upon you as a person. You know, oh, I know the steps I need to take. I need to, you know, automatically do the 90 meetings in 90 days. I'm just lucky that the my mom's house that I'm staying at is, is around the corner from a unity club where they have meetings all day, every day, seven days a week. So I'm really grateful that that, that will be close by. But a lot of people that I talk to that are getting ready to go home automatically know they're going to be on Suboxone when they get out. And I look at it and I'm like, well, why would you want to automatically lean on something that you know is something you're going to be it's going to be just another chain that you're going to be walking around with and um, they're like well it's better than using heroin and whatnot like they already know a lot of them already know that when they get out it's either going to be one or the other so let me you ask know? you this um, um, in the years that you've been clean right have you fully dealt with your triggers when you come home i i understand you're going to be in a safe net in your in your mother's house and close by. Yeah. But there's a lot there's a lot of things out there in the world that when you're on your own that could trigger something. Have are you prepared to deal with your triggers, you know, outside yeah. of prison 
Cause you know when you in, when we in prison, I can tell you like I dealt with my triggers and I felt secure. Right. But once I served my thirty one years and came home and I was loose, free, it was mm-hmm. almost like wow, what do I do now? Well, okay, so I was clean for fifteen years here, and then I had a uh, hip surgery. I, I tore my labrum in my hip, and so I had to have major surgery for that. And when I came out of the surgery, I turned down the pain medication that they were offering me, the oxycodone, because simply because I didn't want to stay back in the infirmary because the night when I got back, I couldn't even get a cup of ice. You know, I was so sick from all the pain medication being knocked out. I had the worst heartburn. And it took me like two hours to even get a cup of ice. So I checked myself out the next morning. I was like, you know, I don't want anything to do with being in the infirmary. I can take care of myself better with some aspirin and whatnot back here on the wing. And they only gave me enough for three days anyways. So with that being said, I came back to the wing and the dealing with the pain from hip surgery is no joke. It took me a good month before um, I could even like walk on my own again. And I ended up relapsing because someone said to me, hey, you know, this will help with your pain. You know, because sometimes it would just, the pain would just put me in tears. And finally, you know, I just gave in to the offers and I said, fine, you know, I ended up relapsing. But with that being said, you know, I relapsed. I used a few more times after that. And uh, I really learned a lot about relapsing because, uh, and I'm glad it happened in here rather than out there because it taught me a lot about myself and I learned things that, like I thought because I'd been clean for so long that I could be around people that were using and I was secure within myself, you know, that it wasn't going to affect me. You have one minute remaining. Because I had no desires anymore. But eventually that's, that's, that's going to that's gonna wear off. You can only have that attitude so long. But the problem is that it's like everywhere. You walk out your cell and it's in your face 24-7. You want me to call you back because this call is going to end? Yeah. She's going to have to be real careful when she gets out. Why you say that? She's using in prison. She was clean for seven, whatever it was, 15 years, and she used. Yeah, that's why I asked her, are you prepared? You know what? Are you still recording? Yeah. You know, like, I understand what she's saying. I got a good support team, but yeah. that shit don't mean nothing, right? No. If, if, if Because you want to be loose on your own. Your mother is not going to be Very with shit. you 24 hours a day. Are you dealing with your triggers? Can you deal with them triggers? Yep. Let me grab this. Here she is. Hello, this is a prepaid call from Amanda, an inmate at the Virginia Department of Corrections, Fuvana Correctional. To accept this call, press zero. To refuse, this call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using PTL. So, um, so I relapsed basically, and then once that happened a few more times, I was kind of like, you know, this is not happening. I'm not trying to go down this road anymore. I'm going home in a few years. So I started going back to NA again um, and the STEP program, and I started working the steps again and getting involved because I'd stopped doing that for years uh, before I relapsed. So I realized right then and there that that's something that I have to to continue to do. Like I, I need to go to those meetings as much as I can and just get a sponsor and just be involved, you know, because you can't do it on your own. But I'm telling you right now that a person that is trying to stay clean in prison is a very lonely place to be because you can't be around anybody. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, you, you, I just dealt with a roommate who just got shipped out who was like a total fiend, you know? And even though, even when she wasn't using, it was like she was always searching for it. So that energy that I was picking up from her just stressed me the fuck out. I can't tell you how happy I was when she got shipped. 
because it just wore me down, even though I wasn't using. You know, just just the stress of being so close to somebody that's using, or even even when uh, you walk out your cell. You know, you go to the hot pot, you go to the bathroom. You know, it, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. It is crazy. I, mean, I, I, I feel you, Amanda, because I'll be honest, and a lot of people don't know this. Like, I did my first bag of dope in prison myself uh-huh. when I first went up. Like, my first mm-hmm. bag of dope again. I did in prison. I went to right. I went to prison. The only thing I smoked to the time I went to prison was a weed, a, a joint. Right. right. I went to prison and became an addict in prison. Like I was shooting yeah. up dope. I was snowing dope. I was transporting yeah. drugs from the free community into the prison mm-hmm. to support my habit, you know, and to be the man in the prison. But then I got tired of that shit and I got clean. And the last time I did a bag of dope was 1994. Right, but then I come home after 31 years, and I'm in my own place. You know, I'm f- basically free. I, you know, even though I got a good support team, they wasn't with me 24 hours a day. And there's been time, there's been time when I'm not gonna lie to you, where I'll be like, "Damn, I could do a bag of dope. I could do some of this shit and get away with it, right?" And nobody will ever know. Nobody right. will ever know, right? And, but these, this is the monster in me. This is the voice that I still have because I always tell people I am a very addicted person. Very addicted person. I get addicted to everything. Food, clothes, money, woman, drugs, weed, liquor. I get addicted, right? right? And those are things that I'm very careful to death. Like very careful. You know, yeah. I watch. I watch where I go, who I talk to. Who I surround myself with Not because they are bad people But because I am an addicted person And I know my triggers Right, exactly. And I know my triggers exactly. And I know them That's why I ask you man Are you really prepared to deal with your triggers Because we're going to have the best support team I got the best support team in the world But still yeah. When I'm home at night I think I want a shot of tequila And if I take a shot of tequila I'm going to end up drinking the bottle and then yeah. I'm going to want to smoke a joint. Even though it's legal now, I'm going to want to smoke a joint. Then I'm going to want to pop some pills. And next thing you know, next thing you know, Suave is out there doing his thing in the worst way. Because I'm an addicted yeah, person. You, I don't know how to take know one. What's, you know what's happening. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, so I know. I, my, my advice to you, right, is to really, really pinpoint your triggers and... And deal with them, right? And let your friends know, like, these are my triggers. I can't be right. around people that wear Muslim oil. I can't. That yeah, should trigger I, something in I, me. You know, it's, it's, it could be a smell. It could be a fool. It could be something that somebody say that could trigger you, right? And as a person that served all that time, coming back into the free world with less supervision yeah. than what we got is very yeah. dangerous. So you have to. And I'm asking you and I'm telling you, you have to identify them triggers now and deal with that shit now before you come home. I you think have that to. The, the biggest thing I learned about this past relapse was, and, I, and like I said, I'm actually happy that it happened. Because you learn, you know, recovery, like say, you know, relapse is a part of recovery. You always learn something more about yourself every time you go through, through this. And I'm glad it happened in here rather than out there. But the thing I learned most this time around that was different for me and I, I didn't let the relapse take away everything that I had learned before, which is something that I would have done in the past. If I relapsed in the past, I would have said, okay, everything I've learned, everything's gone to hell, so fuck it, right? It wasn't like that this time. 
I didn't let it take away, like I said, from everything that I had learned in the past, and I talked about it, and I was honest about it. I was even honest about it with the investigator when they came around and drug tested everybody, um, and they asked me. They're like, you know, and I knew I was going to be dirty, so I just went ahead and told them, you know, and uh, which I probably shouldn't have done. But uh, I did it because at the end of the day, when no one's looking, I want to look in the mirror and feel good about who I am. Feel me? So I have to be honest about when I use, I have to be honest with my friends when I can't be around them. I got to be honest with my family. You know, I need to talk about it. And that's something I didn't do before because I was ashamed. But this time around, it was different. I talked about it and I actually asked for help. And I didn't do that before. I didn't know how to do that before. So, yeah, I mean, I know when I get out, you know, man, I mean, you could just be driving down the road and everything can be great in your life. And all of a sudden you, you make an exit. You, you turn off the road to someplace you shouldn't be going for no reason. It, it, you don't have to have anything for me. I don't have to have anything bad in my life to happen for me to relapse. And that's the really scary thing about it. But the thing about it is that you need to talk about your feelings. You need to talk about what's on your mind. Because that's the only way you're going to get through it is to talk about it and to let people and just, know and to ask and for just, help. And just know that, you know, like the lady just said, we are powerless over our, over our, um, our addiction. And I say this, I had a friend that served almost 30 years and... He was an addict in the prison. He would stop one day and then go two months without it. Either either way, he's made parole. And I saw him about three weeks ago. Took him out. You know, he looked good. But I know he was using because, you know, I'm from the street, so I know when somebody's hot. Mm-hmm. Four days later, I get the phone call that he did a bag. And it was that... um. Fentanyl. That stuff that they got out there now. Fentanyl. Um, uh, that fentanyl. And yeah. which caused him a heart attack. By the time he was done, by the time they took him to the hospital, um, he was brain dead. And he died. And this man served yeah. then near 30 years in prison. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and, and, I, and I share that with you to say that it's that easy. He had a good support team, you know, good wife, good family. The road with him the whole way. But like you said, you know, we come out here, we clean, we look a little decent, better than the next person that's out here. We we, we got that glow, that shine. So we think we yeah. can get away with it. We not built for this. So again, like I said, I'm glad you're dealing with that, right? But just keep that in mind that you're coming back into the real world. You're not coming yeah. back into a world where you're going to be supervised 24 hours a day, piss tested every time the guard feel like piss testing somebody. So you're going to have a lot of opportunities out here to be on your own and make them decisions. And that one, we got to be careful because as an addicted person, you know, like I said, um, I think I could get away with a lot of shit to reality hit. Reality is that I know I can't drink. I know I can't smoke. I know I can't get high. Because once I start, I don't know how to stop. Yeah. I just wish, I wish there were more programs, you know, to help people transition um, out of prison. I really do like more halfway houses, more, because um, it helps to be around people that are going through the same thing you're going through. That's why I feel like it's important, uh, since I'm not going to a halfway house when I get out, you're right, I am pretty much going to be on my own. Um, and no one that's around me that I'm going to be around has been a prison like me. No one that I'm going to be around has been a heroin addict like me. So 
they're not gonna I'm not gonna be able to relate to them and they're not gonna be able to relate to me so that's why I need to carry my ass to a meeting like as soon as I get out man you know that's gonna be like my lifeline basically because I, I recognize I'm not one of these people that's leaving out of here saying oh I'm never coming back to prison I would never I die before I come back here because I know it can happen it can happen, but I just the difference between me today and me when I first got here is that I just feel like I deserved better when I first got here. I felt like I deserved everything that I got, everything that happened to me, and I don't feel like I deserve that anymore. You know, I feel like, I genuinely feel like I deserve a better life than I allowed myself to have before, and so I think that makes a difference too when you're out well, there. Well, you know, I, I beg to different. I don't think you deserve what you got, period, because I, as an addict, as an addiction. Um, it's a sickness and in some state that's how they treat it you know I think right. that um, what you got was a raw deal because of sexism let's let's start with yeah. that and that's up for debate but I think that you don't deserve what you got because as an addict what you deserve was treatment instead of incarceration yeah. you know period yeah, I, I so, do believe so that to say, my, my sense don't get me wrong I, I feel that my sentence was extreme I mean for real, the first 10 years I spent in prison, you guys, I was in shock that I got that much time. Like, for real, it took me a good 10 years of being here to really come to grips and be like, holy shit, I got all this fucking time. I was in shock, and the only way I dealt with it when I got here was to work 60, 70 hours a week in the kitchen. That's all I did. I never took breaks. I never even sat down to take my lunch break. I just worked, 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 and that's how I dealt with it. You know, and until one day it really hit me, you know, and I ended up breaking down. <laughs> I broke down, man. I just, I started laughing hysterically about something stupid and it turned into a, a fucking crying fit. <laughs> After 10 years of being here, it hit me. So, um, so yeah, let me I ask you like something, Amanda. Was, let me ask you huh? something real quick before Kevin, because I see Kevin trying to jump in this conversation real, <laughs> real quick. Let me ask you something, right? And don't be afraid to hurt my feelings. What is a day like for the woman out there that's listening to us and listening to you, to you tell your story? What is a day like for a woman in prison? What is a day like? I mean, a, a day every day is a struggle. You know, I mean, every I, I mean, you wake up. What, what time you get up? What time you eat lunch? What time you lock up? I mean, what is oh, it like? Okay, I want well, people to okay, see that me, picture. Okay, I have, like, for me, I have a schedule, which is not like a lot of people's schedule, but... I usually wake up around like seven o'clock um, in the morning. My mornings are spent in class, which is basically me sitting out in the day room with my schoolwork. And that's when I study in the morning because everybody leaves out for work. So it's kind of quiet on the way. So that's when I come out to do my studying and everything. And then in the afternoon, it's pretty much the same thing unless they have rec. And then I exercise. And um, then around like 2.30, you know, I exercise, take my shower. And then it, when everybody comes in, at 4 o'clock, it's like mayhem because everybody wants to use a kiosk, get on the phone, get the shower, use the microwave, cook, and I'm out of there because I can't deal with all that shit. So I, I'm in my room for the rest of the night. But, you know, I can't speak for other people. This is the schedule that I make for myself every day. It has to be structured. I do the same thing every single day. Like, you can almost, you know, to, down to the minute when I take my shower or when I come out to study or when I exercise or when I do whatever because I, I need that structure. You know, but not a lot of people have that kind of structure. They do every day is different for them, and that's fine. Whatever works for them, but um, that's that's my schedule. So it's, it is pretty structured. And yeah, I usually fall asleep like around ten, eleven o'clock. You know, I watch my TV shows at night. Basically, whenever they call rec, they may call rec. You know, three or four times a week, I go out there 
and try to run out on the ball field on the track. And um, that's it. Go outside when I can. And I work. I do my housekeeping job. I, for 13 years, I worked building maintenance. So that had me out all the time, basically. And I, uh, there was a period in my life where I was getting my associate's degree that I was hella busy because I was taking four college classes, including night classes, working my full-time job, exercising, and, you know, doing all that. So my days were really hectic, but I loved it because I was so busy all the time. Um, but when COVID hit and we were all restricted to our buildings and whatnot, and, you know, that, that good time bill passed, I just decided I wanted to spend my last full year here, you know, taking classes. So I quit my B&G job and um, just did, I really wanted to quit my job altogether. My counselor was like, no, that would count against you and your annual. She's like, why don't you just get some little housekeeping job? And I come out for an hour in the evening and clean, you know, empty the trash, wipe shit down and that's it. So, so before I leave, before I, I, I pass the mic off, a couple other questions. Um, how long you say you've been incarcerated? And December will be 18 years. And 18 years. So in them 18 years, have you missed being involved in a relationship with um, a real relationship out here? Have you know? Do you miss them things like being the head of your own household, being married, perhaps? I don't know if you have children's or not, but more children's if you don't have, if you already got some, or if you don't have none, being having children's, do you miss them kind of things? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, uh, of course, you know, I miss, you know, the whole feel of being in a relationship with somebody and being free to touch and feel and do what you want uh, without somebody, you know, writing you a charge for it or fucking telling you to step away. Uh, from that person, you know, I miss uh, living, just living a normal life, man. The simple things that people take for granted, like I miss taking a shower without shower shoes or being able to take a bath, you know? When I get out of here, I don't want to ever share a bathroom again with another person as long as I live, for real, because I've been sharing a bathroom with 60 women for like, you know, all, all these years and I'm, it's, it's disgusting. Women are filthy creatures, for real. But, um, yeah, so there's a lot of the simplicity of things that I miss. I miss real meat. I, mean, I can't tell you, I don't even know what, uh, I can't remember what a piece of real steak tastes like. Well, I don't or think just, Kevin understands that either because he's a vegan. <laughs> He, he got me going on a vegan too so but 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 i feel you because... oh no man i'm like a true carnivore i just want to dig in my teeth into these canines into a big fat steak when i get out well i'm working my way i'm trying to be a vegan right now i'm so i only eat like chicken and fish by the time i get uh -huh. to san francisco people i will be a vegan <laughs> Kevin is on you. And, you. and you know what else I miss? I miss wearing clothes that fit you. Not clothes that you fit into. People don't realize there's a big difference. Mm. Okay? There's a huge difference. Just wearing clothes that fit you, man. Clothes that are comfortable, that just, you know, make you feel good. I mean, this shit is just, this shit is old. I'm over it. I'm ready to come home. I'm just ready to be able to sleep at night and just there be, just be quiet. Not have to deal with the noise and the loudness and the ratchetness and just, just to, to wake up in the morning and just have there be peace and quiet, man. And just when no one's around. I mean, I try to explain to my family what it's like in prison. I, I say, imagine waking up in your bed and walking to your bathroom and you're walking by five, six, seven people. And imagine you're sitting at the sink brushing your teeth and there's four or five more people standing around you. And it's like that all the time, all the time, every day. You are always around. The only time you're ever alone really is when you're in the shower or sometimes in your room when you get alone time when your celly's like not there. But that's it, man. That is it. it, it there's, no, there's no privacy prison. 
So just being able to walk outside to take a walk or just go to the store and buy what you need when you need it, those are the little things that like I look forward to and people take for granted. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think one of the things, I just want to step back to the question I asked earlier now that you've sort of talked about the relapse you had there and how that looks like what is it that we can do you know as a community because you know really ultimately now you're you're adding people to your community i mean you know here we are suave and i we're here like how can we support you when you get out you know and and i know people in virginia so i'll start probably making some calls and doing some text messaging around you know i got some i got a friend coming out you have prison. one minute remaining so let's use this last uh, minute to just say what what can we do what can we do for you well, there need to be more programs. I mean, people need to, to be busy when they get out. They need to work. They need to, to have something to get up for, a reason to get up for every day, you know, something to do, somewhere to go, uh, more meetings, more programs, more job opportunities. That's the main thing, more job opportunities. You get people at idle time is dangerous time, for real. People sit around with nothing to do, and, and the devil is going to start talking to you big time. So that's how I feel about that. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at Death by Incarceration Podcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone, and please, if you can, take action. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.